When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Name Three Songs. I'm Sarah Fagan. I'm Jenna Million. And this is a podcast where we challenge sexism in the music industry and empower fangirls. Because let's be honest, fangirls knew about that band way before you did. And if you stick around long enough, we'll also let you in on some new music the girls are already crazy about. And before we get into today's episode, we do have a new member of our Patreon community to shout out. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining us over on Patreon. We're so excited to have you. Don't forget, you have the amazing Discord server of friendship to go join so we can chat all things episodes and crazy TikToks we're finding and all other stuff about the goings on in the world of music and the bonus episodes that you get when you sign up for Patreon. So if you guys want to join us too over on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash name three songs. Or if you just want to leave us a tip because you enjoyed this episode, you can do that at paypal.me slash name three songs. So Sarah, what are we talking about today? Today we are venturing into uncharted waters and it is very exciting because we're unpacking R&B music and women in R&B music and how these incredibly talented singers are not given the same spotlight and same space as people who fit within like the quote unquote pop star box meaning like the white woman singing songs that they didn't write sort of category of music. But also on top of that, like their overall impact on the music industry and just culture itself. And this is one of those topics where I think in doing research for it, we kind of uncovered that we knew a little bit more about these women that we're talking about today than we had realized. But it definitely wasn't something that we could go into just on our own. Yeah, because I mean, you guys listen along with us, you know, we come from a rock background, you know, we love our pop music, we talk a lot about pop music, and R&B, as Sarah said, is one of those uncharted territories for us, and it's like something that we both enjoy listening to, but we just don't have the same knowledge base we do there as we do with general pop music. And so we're really grateful that we have such an awesome guest today to help us walk through this journey of R&B. Yeah, and the thing that was really exciting is Maya, who Jenna will introduce you guys to in a second, is a listener of the podcast and really wanted to share her knowledge with us, which was really cool. And it's, again, like one of those topics where because of how the general American white public likes to just have little doses of people that don't look like them in their pop culture knowledge. Um, These women's careers like didn't get to last as long as they deserve to. Thankfully, we are seeing them make comebacks over the past couple years. And Maya has joined us with her expertise to talk about where this all started and where it's going and what the future of R&B can possibly look like. So Jenna, would you like to introduce everybody to Maya? Maya Abrams is a current graduate student studying audio arts at Syracuse University and has started her career in the entertainment industry, working for companies like Disney, ABC Entertainment, and FanMade. She hopes to pursue a full-time career on the industry side of R&B and soul music. She also launched her music industry podcast, Maya's Music Motive, discussing music business topics that are of interest to everyday media consumer. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Hi, Maya. Welcome to Name Three Songs. Thank you for joining us. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. So we're really excited to get into this episode because you are our resident R&B expert today. So to kick things off and to get us all in the proper mindset of thinking about R&B, we're going to dive into some history. So who do you think are some of these key players? Can you give us a little bit of background context on kind of R&B music to set the scene for today's episode? Well, one, thank you for honing me as your R&B expert. I am honored. I feel like my mom would be so proud of me. But yeah, I think a great place to start is just kind of like around the 1950s is a good place. R&B started because it is a combination of, of course, rhythm and blues started, hence the R and the B in R&B. So rhythm music, which also can be alluded to jazz, was sort of like the elitist genre of Black music at the time. While you had blues music, which was played more in the South, and it was more of the common person music. One definitely had more of a upbeat vibe one had a downbeat vibe between the two and then you combine that with music from gospel which of course is the music of mostly christian and baptist churches with sex (laughs) which is what i say kind of like yeah rhythm blues or jazz blues gospel and sex you got r&b oh my god Um, and then our key players yeah it's really a hybrid i know people are like gospel and sex i was like well yeah that's how ray charles got in trouble singing his songs down in like georgia they didn't dig it (laughs) but yeah our players at the time it's kind of a transition point you have some jazz artists that really lean to r&b like the great nina simone who was a classical pianist and jazz singer but she did sing soul music you have of course the queen of soul aretha franklin makes she rest in power we have women like ella fitzgerald who was a jazz singer but sort of started melting into the soul world a little bit right before she passed away and then we have women like Tammy Terrell that was more of a pop artist but she sang with Motown and it was considered pop music but of course like most Motown music had a soul influence yeah so mm-hmm. a lot of these women were really doing their own genre bending just because the thing about R&B music is that it was considered race music to all of the major labels and to everyone in America and the industry at that time just in the general public which was really just a label given by the labels and by radio for black music so nothing really had a genre if you were black you were in race music it didn't care matter if you sang country sang soul you were a jazz musician you sang ballads like everyone was race music and everyone was on the same playing field so then r&b kind of was at the politically correct label to be placed over race music um and then we didn't really get more genres after that. It was like, okay, now if you're black, you sing R&B, you sing soul music, and every person kind of has their own version. So like James Brown was the same as Rake the Franklin, which was the same as Nina Simone, which was the same as Ray yeah. Charles. Like everybody was equal, even though all of their styles are so different. But yeah, that's kind of where we are in the genre at that time. And then we were talking too about how once you see like hip hop and rap entering the scene, they just combined that with R&B and called it the urban music genre. Yeah. And then we had this thing called hip hop that started uh, in the late 70s into the 80s. And then you have people that are, of course, rapping over a track. And instead of really giving its own genre, giving its own chance to thrive, it was just like, all right, so now we have black people that are like spitting over a mic. Let's just call it urban music. So we have the black people that sing and we have the people that rap. And this is the same market going after the same goal, even though they couldn't be more different. And one genre is mostly very male, heavily influenced, while the other one is more even. But definitely doesn't matter at all so yeah Yeah. that was another umbrella that we were given and that's still sometimes used if you look kind of at different charts and different um, metrics i mean like this is a topic that we've covered in past episodes of the podcast of just like the way in which charts were labeled and genres were labeled and like my personal frustration with the idea of music genres and how they pigeonhole people into ideas that don't necessarily fit them or suit them 
because it's like white people have always throughout music history and even to this day are kind of allowed to like jump around and sit wherever they want in the cafeteria sort of situation whereas black artists still even now as we've talked about countless times like have these issues where they get signed to a record label and they'll be like okay you look a certain way so we need you to sing this type of music and then they're like but that's not what I sing and you know that because you signed me and they're like yeah but you look like XYZ so therefore you need to sing ABC because you match their vibe or whatever and meanwhile it seems like R&B is like an overarching genre for any black singer that's not rapping that's singing but yet if a white person sings R&B music they're not referred to as a pop singer they're viewed as an R&B singer and so again it's just that thing where you constantly have the white privilege of it all where you kind of get to sing within a genre that you believe in whereas like a lot of these black artists that we're going to be talking about today kind of cross lines in what genres they're singing and like what stories they're telling in their songs and all these things and yet they're still pigeonholed to a genre or even sometimes they're not given like the level of success that they should be just because of the way they look or like the rules that some old white man put in place decades ago. Yeah. And another thing that kind of looking in the reverse, as you said, like whenever we have sometimes like a white pop artist who happens to be very soulful in their vocals or very influenced by black artists, for example, Demi Lovato, I remember when they put out an album, I think it was their self-titled album, like 2015. Of course, Demi is an incredible vocalist. I will say nothing against that, but their range is very low and very, very like hollow and almost kind of gospel sounding that everyone said that they put out an R&B album. They're like, oh my God, Demi's in their R&B era when of course that wasn't the case. It was still a very bubblegum pop album, but anytime they kind of want to make a singer sound cool or sound like cultured or sound very dynamic, they want to put an R&B label on it. But then you have, you know, singers like Normani or someone that is kind of pushing the pop feel. Like Normani very much would be an incredible pop singer. It's like, no, she's just like a pop R&B singer. Like it has to end in the title R&B whenever it's a black vocalist, no matter how they sound. Absolutely. I mean, you just reminded me of we spent a whole episode talking about people who left boy bands who then leaned very heavily into R&B in order to be cool in society and like to remake (laughs) their image and then sometimes still use R&B influences, but mostly make pop records. So just remind me of that as you're talking as well. But you already mentioned Aretha Franklin. Of course, she is a huge name, a huge powerhouse just in music in general, like regardless of what genre we're talking about. You know, she's been an amazing influence for so many people. So just to give like a quick little background, we had a great article in NBC News by David A. Love in 2018, which detailed that Franklin was a soul singing global icon with staggering commercial success, notching 44 Grammy Award nominations and 18 wins and releasing 19 albums in the 1960s, 11 from 1967 to 1969 alone, like literally incredible statistics. But I think unless you specifically have studied this era of music or like know a lot about Aretha Franklin, you might not know that she was also a huge part of like the civil rights movement and that a lot of black musicians made music that was very closely tied to the civil rights movement. Yeah, basically Aretha, of course, she's the queen of soul and she like was the voice before Whitney Houston came around. Like if you are in a black household, there's like a photo of probably like Jesus and like Barack Obama and like Aretha Franklin. Like it's just a standard (laughs) to be honest. Um, I love that. I don't know 
if that's not right to say, I'm sorry, but this is true. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, along with being the queen of soul and along as putting out like hit after hit after hit and working so hard to really establish herself as an artist. What people don't know actually is that Aretha Franklin had a father who was a very well-known um, pastor in a big church in Detroit named R.L. Franklin. And he had close ties to the civil rights movement, meaning that Aretha naturally would be passionate enough to be involved in the civil rights movement, which most people would think like, of course, like she's a black vocalist, she's a black singer. Why wouldn't she be involved? But there was a big divide of artists that did get themselves involved with Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, Jesse Jackson and all of that. And then there were artists like most of the artists under the Motown label, which I don't really blame them entirely. Barry Gordy ran a very tight shift. He did not want his artists being non-marketable to mostly white audiences. So he kept a tight grip on like what they could do with the civil rights movement yeah. and what they couldn't. But then you had your singers like Aretha, singers like Nina Simone, who like fully took their careers and just handed it over to these leaders that were trying to, of course, you know, bring justice and bring actual freedom to black people in America. But for her to take a stand and really put herself on such a pedestal and to go on tour with Martin Luther King and sing at these banquets and really turn her music into something that could be playable on the radio but also really make a statement like one of her best albums was called Young Gifted and Black which was after Nina Simone released, released her song called Young Gifted and Black and that was one of the first times we had not just of course like a black singer but just a singer in general really say being black is good and being black is to be celebrated and it really gave a whole generation of people like you know this was probably like my grandmother's generation also my parents generation when they were really young that were being told by entertainers and by people in pop culture that who you are is amazing and celebrated and pure and you should have that full right to proclaim that. Yeah, I love what you're saying. And I mean, we're lucky that we actually have a really great quote from Aretha in this NBC article I mentioned, where she said, I believe that the black revolution certainly forced me and the majority of black people to begin taking a second look at ourselves. It wasn't that we were all ashamed of ourselves. We merely started appreciating our natural selves, sort of, you know, falling in love with ourselves just as we are. We found that we had far more to be proud of. So I suppose the revolution influenced me a great deal, but I must say that mine was very personal evolution an evolution of the me and myself. And I think this is such a beautiful quote because it's not just politics, right? It's a whole appreciating yourself, loving yourself, loving your culture, knowing that you are important. And I think if we're talking about R&B music, we wouldn't be telling the full picture if we didn't mention the civil rights movement in this because I think they're so closely intertwined in Black artists telling their stories and what Black people in this country have had to go through and how that has evolved through the generations into the music that we have now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I would think just any, really any like culture or people of color group that, you know, make music, of course, certain experiences are going to reflect that music. I would think the same as in Latino music, the same as in, you know, certain types of Korean music and Chinese music, even in the pop world that, of course, people make music based off of their stories. So these artists that were seeing like people of their stature get praised on like the Ed Sullivan show and being on Dick Clark, but then you see people in the streets in the South that are fighting for the rights to have, you know, basic human rights and being beat down and being murdered in some occasions. It, it's natural to feel angry because you think in the same situation, like in a different world, like that could have been me. What makes me any different than the person that's on the street fighting for my rights? So I'm just very happy that these women felt strong enough and felt enough bravery and confidence and enough guts to not just take the easy road and be very passive, but really be at the forefront of that. And there's also the constant overarching theme that we discussed a lot in our episode about how like Black women created rock and roll music is that there were these 
white men who were involving themselves in these movements or in these scenes. And like they weren't necessarily I mean, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, but it's like they weren't showing up to be like, oh, let me steal this music. But because they were so heavily influenced and yes, sometimes like would cover these songs or quote unquote make them their own like Elvis did. But so you always have kind of like these white men showing up and being like, oh, this is really cool. I want to be part of this and kind of stealing it, like for lack of better words. And so I feel like that, again, is like the ongoing pattern you see here is most of these women were more celebrated after their time by the white general public, where you see these things where it's like a lot of people will know Aretha Franklin for like her cover of Otis Redding's Respect and like these sorts of things where there's like very specific songs that quote unquote everybody knows. But when you think of everybody, it's more so like the people who watch American Idol and therefore know songs because of American Idol. Because when we were reading stuff before, I was like, oh, I know a few of these Jasmine Sullivan songs. And I was like, oh, it's because they were covered on Glee. And it's like, that's embarrassing. But also thanks Glee for broadening my horizons, maybe, you know, but like not everybody goes downloads music after watching an episode of Glee, you know, or goes and downloads music after watching American Idol or whatever. And so these women very much so, especially like Aretha Franklin, kind of changed music forever, especially for other young Black women, as we see just throughout everybody we're going to talk about today and just in general when you listen to music and the fact that there were kind of these white men just like mucking about and being like oh like let's do this too and then them kind of being celebrated more so throughout their whole careers whereas these women get celebrated in like tiny pockets and then like once they're older or once they're kind of quote unquote past their prime that's when they really start to be celebrated because somebody who's important is like, hey, why are we not acknowledging how important they were? And then I was like, oh, shit, we got to do that now. And I feel like that's another common theme here of like somebody important, whether it be in journalism or in music or what have you kind of comes out of the woodwork and is like, hey, everybody's been using this person as inspiration since day one. And then everybody's like, oh, yeah, they have. Now let's talk about them. And I feel like that's like what a lot of what's been going on here. I think one thing is a lot of these times we see these women's influence, not really through them as terrible as sounds, but really through the women that come after them. Like, I Mm -hmm. don't know who said this specifically, but one person said, if you think that your favorite singer hasn't been influenced by Aretha Franklin, you're sick. Like every woman, whether it's people almost close to their age, like Dionne Warwick, Chaka Khan, Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight, they were influenced by Aretha and they were like, close in age to Aretha, to Mm -hmm. Whitney Houston and Natalie Cole, to Mariah Carey, down to the like the Victoria Monet, Jasmine Sullivan. Every generation picks something up from Aretha. So those women are really the women that carry Aretha's legacy. Like Mm -hmm. Aretha's legacy. Of course, now you have the movie that came out and like the National Geographic show that came out like recently, which I'm very happy about. But really, it was like generations of people learning about Aretha and taking her singing tactics and her vocalist just choices and putting in their music that's really showed her strength as a singer and her strength as a woman and those of us that are in the industry as black women or women of color that have learned from her like me like me being able to talk about this I feel like I'm doing her my duty to share her legacy which is one reason why I was like I want to talk about this like please let me (laughs) so yeah it's sad that you know you have to have other people kind of be the voice of reason for these women but at the same time it's a beautiful thing because no I always say like no one's a bigger advocate for black women than black women and I think that this topic as you 
kind of we go through the course of it will really show how that stands up. Yeah. So we're going to get into like a lot of women from like the 90s and 2000s period. But one thought I had as you guys were talking about this too, is I wonder if there's a certain cultural nostalgia aspect to it, especially now that we're in the 2020s of like looking back 20 years ago and like 90s culture was really cool now early 2000s culture is becoming cool again of remembering these stars like we're going to talk about lauren hill and like brandy and like oh yeah remember how great they were back then or like Aaliyah. they just released her music on streaming but it's those types of things it's like oh they were so cool back then like let me like rediscover it which like two part of this conversation is maybe they are starting to get like this recognition that they didn't have to the same degree before I definitely think you have a point with the like kind of the nostalgia kind of regurgitation, regeneration kind of every 20 years. This actually was the 20 year anniversary of Aaliyah's death, which really kind of shows like why she got put on streaming, why like all these things are being released of merchandise, why she's kind of being in the public eye again, which I couldn't be happier about. But I think sort of, yeah, like every other generation, people kind of look back for inspiration or look back at what was going on. And that really gives the opportunity for these people to be put on a platform that definitely shows what women are being like recognized sort of like at award shows like Ashanti who we'll probably talk about a little later just received the icon award at the Soul Train Awards which was great because I feel like she's honestly a little bit overlooked a lot of the time and she's an incredible singer and songwriter yeah and of course the cultural nostalgia wouldn't be possible right without as you said the black women who are continued to be inspired by them and bring that into their music so speaking of women who inspire next up we're going to talk about miss lauren hill so we had a great article in time called how lauren hill educated the music industry 20 years ago by brandon tensley in 2018 and this details that on its release 20 years ago today so in 2018 the miseducation of lauren hill achieved near universal critical acclaim at the 41st grammy awards in 1999 hill became the first woman to win five or more awards in a single night the album became the first hip-hop record to win album of the year so lauren hill made a huge impact in her career like very early on and then she's one of these artists who stepped away from the limelight for a while and then came to return and so because of this she's maybe not remembered with like the success that she could have had, you know, if she hadn't stepped away. So yeah, what are your thoughts on the importance of Lauren Hill here? Miss Lauren Hill, Miss Education. Miss Lauren Hill is just like, that's one of my heroes. So like, I, I love this conversation. Well, for starters, I think another thing to highlight is like, kind of this shows an example of how R&B music sort of, since the genre really was so holistic, kind of artists had to sort of kind of sub themselves. Like, that's kind of where we get into the world of neo-soul, which of course, Lauren is a big staple in alongside like Erica Badu, Jill Scott, etc. And then we also have her as a lyricist in hip-hop, because of course, she was with the Fugees with Wyclef Jean in the earlier 90s and then went solo but still really did like half singing half rapping on her album but for her to be considered just a rapper or just a singer really would be doing her an injustice so I'll just kind of highlight that and then yeah this album was very vulnerable it was very just a lot of soul searching it was so well done so well written so well executed I think she was sharing so much that kind of goes wrong in the music industry very early like one of the songs which is one of my favorites called to Zion is a song dedicated to her firstborn son and really what happened with the song is that she found out she was pregnant and instead of really kind of like allowing her to go through this journey and become a mother a lot of people that were working with her were like you're at the top of your career you're like the top artist in r&b and hip-hop right now and you want to have a child they wanted her to terminate her pregnancy and she wouldn't and that's really how the song came to be which is just a love letter to her child and really her making the decision to put herself over her career but it's the fact that she was just able to be so vulnerable and just fully 
transcribe and singing like what she was going through at the time and then also be rewarded album of the year and she was the first black woman to ever get album of the year first hip-hop artist to ever get album of the year she is the first and only black woman to get that award may i add as well so she still holds that record or that title even though it's been like 20 22 23 years now then she just got sucked dry and then the reason why like she's called ms lauren hill is because you know she's very big on mutual respect and she felt like she wasn't being respected by people at her label people in the industry she felt like people were kind of treating her like she was a little girl that mm-hmm. people didn't want to see her grow as an individual they just really wanted her to put out another album to follow up miseducation but she ended up doing an mtv unplugged which she sang a lot of original songs that weren't finished but that was really the last thing we saw of her just because she just didn't want to deal with the pressure of putting out music that wasn't fully articulated and fully complete and felt like it was really serving a purpose and then she kind of just like you said disappeared now granted she kind of has been out and performing somewhat there definitely is like a whole thing about her not always showing up on time and her yeah. sets being short <laughs> just because like which is kind of like a running joke but at the same time it's like when you have someone that just got completely mistreated so young because granted she was yeah. my age like early 20s when this happened to fully bounce back and kind of entrust yourself with being in this world again I couldn't imagine how it feels I think for someone like her it's like when you give people the gift of an album like this and everybody's like so excited about it and the world's just kind of like a buzz about this music you know as you said it's kind of like the labels see dollar signs and they're like when are you giving us our next album and then there's this common again another common theme of women for some reason aren't allowed to be a woman and an artist they have to pick one or the other I mean Halsey even talked about this this past year in a Zane Lowe interview about how when she got pregnant and like was calling her team to tell them there was just like this fear that she had even though she knew it would probably be fine of them being like you're at the top of your game right now like you can't have a baby and she was like that's not what happened but the fact that I even had that thought is like terrifying and so the fact that Lauren Hill went through that it's insane and it's just so crazy how like women are never allowed to be multifaceted in any regard and then when they take themselves seriously or they make art out of these real female emotions the world and the music industry more specifically specifically are kind of like are you sure you want to do that sweetie do you know what you're doing here this is a much bigger game than like you being young and having a kid and it's like what screw that that's stupid and it's just that thing where like also in this time article he quotes from an essence interview that she did in 2006 where she said i had to fight for an identity that doesn't fit in one of the music industry's boxes and this is something that jenna and i talk about a lot about how like the music industry has these like very strict boxes that they like to put women in especially women of color and even more especially black women and so it's like she didn't fit into any boxes and then also on top of that she's wanting to have a family and have a career and it kept doing her dirty and i mean my favorite thing about her is the fact that to this day she's kind of like if you want to interview me it's going to cost you thousands of dollars like if you want to be in the same room as me I'll show up when I want to and I feel like she deserves that because at the time of her fame she wasn't given the respect she deserved because people were viewing her as a stupid youth or like just this dumb girl who was making the wrong decisions for her career when like men can go do whatever they want because it doesn't affect their personal bodies you know 
Yeah, and another thing is when Ms. Lauren Hill was part of the Fugees, of course, like, Wycliffe was very much seen as, like, the front person. Like, of course, she was special because she was the only woman in the group, but, like, Wycliffe definitely was, like, the one that kind of took the shots, the one that really sort of led the group, the one that really seemed as, like, the person sort of, not, I would say, running everything or operating everything. I think it was more equal, but I think Wycliffe was kind of placed as the head of it in terms of, like, the industry, in terms of the fans, how the perspective was given. Of course, Wycliffe ended up being one of the best producers in music for a number of years but I think people really underestimated Lauren's power as a young woman and as a creator and just as a black woman and they were very conscious in their rap like they were talking about issues that were very sort of like controversial at the time and I don't know why people didn't expect her to do the same thing in her own solo music I don't know if they thought oh she's solo she's gonna like kind of die it back maybe a little bit or oh she's solo like she's gonna kind of give us like a very traditional R&B album even though what she was singing about was very much like fit the Fuji's mold so I'm kind of like y'all should have seen this coming one and two like the beginning of this neo-soul moment which happened of course at the end of late 90s which was a very woman-led movement which I, why I love it you have women like Erica Badu that's singing about like same thing about women you know kind of like know what men are looking for they're not always have the best intentions blah 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 you know with Tyrone she's saying like I got a bum as a boyfriend somebody needs to come get him I deserve better why couldn't Lauren be given the same opportunity? You know, even though a lot of her songs ended up charting really well, it's like, you guys see that this is like working. Like people are listening to this music on the radio. Like everything is everything was incredible as a song. Zion was incredible as a song. Yeah. X Factor. It still played on the radio like today, but just wasn't given the same level of respect. I think it's kind of like she was singing her truth, but she wasn't being allowed to live her truth. And I mean, mm -hmm. in the interviews that she has done, she, like she's been vocal about her distaste for like the music industry. Like also in this time article, Brandon says a friend of the singers told Rolling Stone in 2003 that Hill quote despised the manufactured international superstar magazine cover girl that she felt she become. And then again in that Essence interview, Hill says that the industry is a small space designed for consumer mass appeal and dictated by very limited standards. So I mean it's like the truth that she's telling in her music is the truth that she's like speaking out loud and like living as a person. But it's like we're not allowing her to be that person, you know? I mean it all just just goes back to like we want to put you in a box and I mean it's amazing that she was very vocal about not wanting to be in that box and it makes sense that she acts the way that she acts now and it kind of just like also makes me think how would the industry be if more artists took this type of stance of no you're gonna give me the respect I deserve yeah it puts a lot up to speculation in terms of why is it every time specific women I'll say when they start to kind of stand up for themselves and demand a certain level of respect that they could consider as divas or demanding going back to Aretha Franklin one thing Aretha was famous for was doing shows with her purse like on her shoulder because she was going to get paid before she went on stage to sing and that was like so controversial at the time but once again Aretha was always labeled as a diva for doing that and it's like every yeah. time women that look a certain way are just demanding a certain level of self-respect because some of us have to demand it or it literally will not be given it gets the demanding diva unable to work with all of those like negative labels when some people demand a certain level of respect like yes girl get your life but it's like okay why can't we have that equal level of like mutual yeah. respect absolutely it's like you're gonna get taken advantage of unless you exactly tell people what you deserve or like what your boundaries are for example people are just gonna keep asking asking for more and doing whatever they want with you unless you define those and i feel like that's just like the thing that keeps happening and why we've seen black artists kind of not be given that 
platform is again kind of like a, a bit of like a control thing by the music industry itself but also just women of all races in the music industry have always been very controlled by like the big man no matter what and it's a frustrating issue because it's like unless you are daddy's favorite child or whatever like your career isn't going to hit the mainstream in the same way and this is like a common occurrence throughout a lot of this music in that we're seeing artists writing songs and then other artists get given those songs or even people covering songs by quote-unquote smaller artists or whatever and like getting more success off the back of like not to be brash but like more talented women in a lot of senses because people like either a certain look or a certain vibe or just like a certain image the industry or like the men in charge of the industry kind of view them as like a better poster child for that song because it's like that weird thing where when you do something really good at work and then your manager takes credit for it it kind of feels like that's what has happened consistently to a lot of these black artists who because the industry was so stuck on the fact that black women specifically had to do R&B music that therefore like if a song sounded poppier or like could potentially be poppier that a pop artist quote unquote had to sing that song rather than somebody who the white general public would look at and be like that's an R&B singer. So this is a common occurrence and one of the biggest perpetrators of this is Jennifer Lopez. Let's be clear. It's Tommy Mottola. The biggest perpetrator is Tommy Mottola, yeah. but the face of it is Jennifer Lopez. Maybe it's both though. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving Tommy Mottola too much credit. Maybe I'm not giving Jennifer Lopez enough credit <laughs> in her doing in this. Oh my God. So basically, when it comes to the Jennifer Lopez of it all, obviously she's the front for a more villainous human, which is Tommy Mottola, who is usually the main villain in this story. There have been yeah. other men who have done the minion work for Tommy, but Tommy is kind of always the end guy, you know? And Jennifer Lopez is just the face and maybe sometimes not the voice of the theft of these Black women's songs, you know? <laughs> and again, it's this weird thing because it's like Jennifer Lopez is a Latina woman, but America and like the white American public has kind of been more welcoming to Latina women throughout pop culture. Like they were like the first people of color that seemed to be more accepted, which is something that we have acknowledged in other episodes too, of just like the pattern at which white people decided to start accepting others in places that they didn't belong before. Everything sounds wrong that I'm saying, but... <laughs> Like, <laughs> didn't belong in the eyes of white people. Yeah, in the eyes of white people, you know? And so it is just interesting that Jennifer Lopez has gotten this bad rap. And, and there's so many articles about like, oh, like, is Jennifer Lopez really the villain in all of this? When of course she's not because the singer never has that kind of power to go and be like, Ooh, let's steal this song. It's always somebody behind the scenes. But she is a big perpetrator of this. And some of the women whose songs she has wound up releasing or that she's like either quote unquote remixed or covered or even just completely released and the original artist hasn't gotten released are names that a lot of our listeners will probably know and have that kind of light bulb moment of like, oh yeah, what happened to them? And like pull out their phone to Google. 
when it's like their careers aren't necessarily over for most of them. Like a lot of them are still making music, but because of the box that the music industry likes to put women in, their careers were kind of stifled a little bit. So they weren't the blockbuster names that they should have been because of that box that they did not fit in and therefore their song got taken from them and given to somebody who that song like fit with more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! <sniffs> and this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sniffs> Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Yeah, yes, I agree. One thing I will say, just a slight, not speaking for Latino women, of course, but like one thing about you kind of sliding in that they were more socially acceptable. Another thing that I will highlight just in all cultures that are non-white is that colorism does have a big point of yeah. to play in it. Um, I know y'all did the black fishing episode and I was a big fan of that. And I am a light-skinned black woman saying this, so I am sorry. But usually every culture kind of has their like Europeanized, socially acceptable sort yeah. of threshold of where you have women that are lighter skinned in every single race. And you kind of see examples of that like versus like J-Lo, Mariah Carey for black women, Beyonce for black women, Yoko Ono, where you have a really socially acceptable version of that race that is able to be mm-hmm. sellable to America. So I yeah. definitely think J-Lo was one of those examples, even though she was a woman from the Bronx in New York City. So like you yeah. are a light-skinned Puerto Rican woman, which is why Selena, as much as I love her, another great example of a lighter-skinned Mexican woman who was able to like push past that boundary, who is amazing. Like I love her, but like still that's another example of how that was able to be marketable at that time. Yeah. But yeah, kind of just going into that. But yeah, Tommy, good old Tommy. He, woo, we talk about the devil works hard, but Chris Jenner works harder. The devil works hard with Tommy Mottola. <laughs> works harder all day every day and i don't want to go in here and say like of course j-lo was like the villain that really was like give me these women's song like i really think at the end of the day a lot of these labels have their own studios that kind of belong to them or that they tend to record most of their stuff so most of these Mm -hmm. artists that did record these songs probably had the demos and they went and found those demos and just hey was like hey j-lo i have a song for you this is gonna be a hit versus her really searching out that specific song that she knew belonged to a person. It was definitely a lot of lack of communication is what I'll say. And it was kind of a similar group of singers that were all around and very relevant at the time, which makes sense Mm -hmm. that they were putting out hits because they had put out hits in the past. But unfortunately, the labels, either they saw that it was too valuable for them to sing and they're like, we can do something bigger with a bigger artist than you just because of how great the song is or it's like we don't really want to utilize you for the song just based off of it sounding too poppy as you said and so of course when it comes to Tommy Mottola there is the infamous Mariah Carey J-Lo feud which we have spoken about before where Tommy knew that Mariah was going to be sampling a specific song called Candy by Cameo and so therefore instead before Mariah could get that out he was like oh let me 
do that for J-Lo. And then J-Lo got to sample that in her song, I'm Real. And so that kind of snowballed into Tommy going and taking other people's songs and demos and using them. And so for one example that I'm sure a lot of you guys will recognize the name of would be Ashanti, which I feel like she's one of those people, again, where you either know her from her music or from John Tucker Must Die or what have you. But like she has been relevant in pop culture for most of any younger 90s kids life. You know, like she was relevant. And she, again, was one of these women who should be a household name. I feel like is one of those people that when you hear her name, you're like, is she not a household name? But until you hear her name brought up, you kind of like don't think about her. And so she started making music as a teenager in the early 2000s. And she was signed to Murder, Inc. Records in 2002. She featured on songs with Fat Joe and Ja Rule. So lots of names you probably don't think about right now, but were really big deals when most of us were like preteens or children, you know, and she actually became one of the first female artists to occupy the top two positions on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart simultaneously. So like her music career was doing really well. But again, it's that box that you belong in. And if your music goes outside that box, your music gets taken from you. And so basically what had happened was, was she was working with Ja Rule in the early 2000s. There was this pop crush article written in 2018 that is essentially unpacking the idea that JLo wasn't actually the villain, the men around her were. And so what this article is acknowledging is the fact that Ashanti was working a lot with Ja Rule in the early 2000s and that they had teamed up for remixes for I'm Real and Ain't It Funny, which are Jennifer Lopez songs. And on both of those songs, you can actually hear Ashanti's vocals. They're uncredited. But when you listen to the J-Lo versions of these songs, you do in fact get to listen to Ashanti sing, which I think is quite funny because there are these artists that sometimes can't hit certain notes or like can't do certain sounds. And so if you go and do a Google deep dive, you will find out who the black woman behind the voice actually is, (laughs) which is saying a lot about just the fact that, again, genres box people in and don't allow people to really have like as much creative leeway as they should be allowed to have. In the Black community, that song is kind of famous because like J-Lo says the N-word in that song. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, what the hell? Like Everyone was like, what in the, how did that? But like the fact that Ashanti sings it and then they didn't change it and just had J-Lo lip it, like lip sync it or sing it, like it makes more sense how that just got like completely allowed versus like saying like, oh yeah, you you got it girl, like you're from New York, you know how we do like whatever versus yeah. having a shot to say that and where does a white woman and you know, just keeping yeah. it. Because I always was like, I don't know how they allowed her to do that. Like, that used to frustrate me so much. But that's just because they forgot. (laughs) They they forgot to edit out Ashanti singing. So that's the thing that's just, like, so funny with it is they're like, oh, like, we'll just put this in and it'll be fine. And then it comes back to bite them in the ass because they're like, oh, fuck, we forgot that J-Lo isn't actually part of that community and maybe that shouldn't be here. (laughs) But also, as we were doing research, I found an article where J-Lo posted like a 20-year anniversary of like, oh my gosh, 20 years ago, like I released Mm -hmm. my first track. And then everyone's like, you mean Ashanti released your first track? (laughs) 
People just like to this day trolling her for that. And one of Ashanti's biggest hits, which is What's Love, which I totally went to listen to. Like I went back to listen to these songs as I was doing research and I was like, oh yes, I remember now. Amazing song. But that was almost also given to J-Lo. And the next examples we have coming up too, same thing. There were several songs that were hits for these women that were still almost also given to J-Lo. And it's just one of those scenarios where it's like, you know, thinking of this whole situation with Tommy Mottola, it's like, he's like, here's the pop star that I'm trying to build like jello's already famous she's an a-list celebrity right what is the best that i can take from my resources it doesn't matter what the cost is to other people i just want the best for this one person mm-hmm. i'm putting all my money on and it's jello and a lot of these references it's great that they got hits out of them but i just love like the stories we're gonna talk about amiri she's a singer really around the early 2000s she is from the dmv area which is like dc maryland virginia for those that don't know and she's specifically from dc and they have their own specific version of music called go go and that's like their subgenre. It's strictly in DC. Well, she worked with a producer named Dark Child, who was really popular at the time. He ended up working with like Destiny's Child, Michael Jackson, and name a couple of people, but he was like the producer. And they did a song called One Thing, which was like her biggest hit to date. It really was almost like the closest competition with Beyonce's Crazy in Love, which is one of Beyonce's biggest hits to this day. So like that showed the power of that song. But the reason that it ended up being released in the first place is that she wanted to save it for the album, but Tommy Rotola heard about the song and was saying like, it's going to get given to J-Lo this is going to be another J-Lo single and Amiri snuck into an office got the demo released the demo and then taped a music video for it in a day to release with the demo that had been released out to radio and radio picked it up but that's mm-hmm. literally the story behind her biggest song because she wanted that song so bad that she's like, I'm gonna make it a single. Like I will break into an office and release it myself to give myself the chance before someone takes it away from me. But that's honestly yeah. just like really good luck. And I'm so happy she got to keep the song. I love that song. I love the go-go sound in the song. It's such a crucial song for go-go music and for, you know, DC as a city. And to think that it could have been reclaimed and completely done differently. Like I don't even want to think about that. Yeah. This story is like one of my favorite things because this is another theme that we've seen pop up in like other episodes where artists have been told by their label, oh no, the world's not ready for this song or like, no, it's not time to release this. And the artist is just like, what if I just leaked it myself? And so I love that prior to like social media really being a big thing and all this stuff, Amiri hatched this master plan and that it worked. And so Columbia was actually put under pressure to like, have this be a thing because one side is like, oh, you have to remove this from playlists now. But the radio is like, no, we're obsessed with this. This is going to be a huge thing. And so Columbia wound up having to move super quickly and issue it as an official single, literally like in the first week of 2005, which I love. And so it's again, these things where it's like at this time when radio had so much power, it essentially gave a voice back to somebody whose voice was going to get taken from them. And I think that that's just like a really powerful and crazy thing. Damn, you're right, Sarah. (laughs) I was going to say, because like one of the articles I was reading say that like the record label tried to pull it and the DJs were like, no, it's already going off. We can't. Sorry. I'm like, wow, radio did one good thing for America. (laughs) It did one good thing. Yeah, a lot of people definitely didn't want her to have that moment just because like the whole thing with that being a single People were scared she was going to be possible competition with Beyonce. And they were like, no, Beyonce's our girl. We put a lot of like, thought and investment into this. We can't skew that. There was just a lot of players not really 
fighting for her but the fact that like radio was saying we don't care like this is a hit everyone keeps requesting it because of course they get advertising money out of it they're like no sorry it's out which i mean i don't know why they're gonna try to reverse something like everyone's heard it people could have leaked it like napster was a thing at the time they were goners but it's so beautiful seeing actually like the public really get to fight for someone in this field and actually give them a chance to shine because like who would have known if we ever would have heard music because this was really her lead lead single so who knows if we ever knew who she was as a outer you know public society we would have heard the song yeah Yeah. it's a good point you just mentioned like the beyonce connection because this single was released in 2005 and so you're right like beyonce was on her come up even as a solo artist like i think around this time as well and it just goes to show again it's like we already have one black female solo artist we can't have more than that like check the box we're done exactly there's always one Nicki minaj was always talking about like i'm the queen of rap and like, of course, for a decade, I agree with that statement, but like there was always one and we had very few eras of music where mm-hmm. there's multiple thriving at the same time, which was so great about like even female rap in the 90s. We had Lil' Kim, we had DeBrat and Missy Elliott, we had Queen Latifah, we had Lisa Lopez from TLC. We had a bunch of women doing amazing and charting, but then we went to, oh, Lil' Kim's the one. And we went for, mm-hmm. oh, Nicki Minaj is the one even though we had a lot on her level. And we see that where we have almost like a token, like Beyonce's our one. Even Rihanna, they're like, no, like you're not our one, Beyonce's our one. And now we're kind of at a time where with both rap and RB, like we have so many female rappers that are just completely outdoing men, to be honest. And then we have a lot of R&B singers in the same light that are completely outdoing men, to be honest. It's like, now we kind of have a two or three or four, but it's sort of like, we have our one, but like, we'll give y'all a couple more. Like it's sort of (laughs) slightly pushing. They're too good to not recognize sort of thing where there's not a one, right? now which is really cool to see but it's definitely that token platform or pedestal sort of mentality yeah Yeah, like even though even though we have a few more now there's still the resistance you can still feel it Mm mm-hmm 100%. I feel like that is again the thing that's so interesting because just as like a slight other mention for another J-Lo Tommy Mottola situation you also have Christina Milian who people again will probably recognize her she's done stuff on Disney Channel she's saying like the Call Me Beat Me song from Kim Possible so I mean like she's definitely been somebody who's like popped up in pop culture throughout the years but she was credited as a co-writer for Jennifer Lopez's song called Play but she she also is featured on vocals. And so some people even think that she sings the entire hook of the song. Again, this is like the conspiracy theory of like, can JLo actually really sing? Personally, like I always correlate Jennifer Lopez as an actress rather than a singer. So whenever I'm reminded that JLo is famous to a lot of people as a singer, I'm like, oh, right. But this is the thing is that a lot of these women who J-Lo was given their songs of or almost given their songs of, they're famous for lots of different reasons, but they never really got their huge time to shine in the pop culture zeitgeist, so to speak. And so I think that that brings us to somebody who did, but also didn't in some ways. So we can't talk about women in R&B music without talking about Brandy, because I think that Brandy really was like, an icon and a moment and her career is restarting kind of recently but in the late 90s early 2000s I mean like she was on TV with Moesha she was in movies with her Cinderella rendition with Whitney Houston and Whoopi Goldberg and she had a singing career as well 
And she kind of was really encapsulating what the 90s was all about, which was like a one girl getting everything. Because if you really think about it, I mean, like also around that time, it's like Britney Spears and like Melissa Joan Hart and these people who they were very much a brand and Brandy was very much a brand. And it's again one of those things where because she was like nice and friendly and very much like the girl next door and very palatable to the American family. But at the same time, she wasn't given the opportunity to reach like the tippy top of the skyscraper of fame. Because again, there's still that box where it's like, oh no, she's not fitting in this box, even though we've literally given her every possible opportunity to not fit in that box by giving her TV and movies and music and everything. And like, I feel personally, her career, she should have been one of those like big pop girlies, but she wasn't because again, it's still like she has to fit in R&B, even with giving her kind of the Disney star treatment. And so it's just really interesting when like, again, these women are all kind of like stifled even when they're given the perfect mixture of opportunities yeah i mean i think the thing with brandy is like definitely at the time she was almost like a perfect storm of talent and potential and just exposure i mean she was on upn with modi show was one of the top rate shows at the time she had her solo career she was in cinderella next to like whitney houston which was like an honor as a teenager and even got to like kind of pave the way for her brother aj to sort of like start his career as well and it's just crazy how someone can go from being like on a song of the year like with the boy is mine with monica and like doing Mm -hmm. all these amazing things and being a dark-skinned black girl at the time with like braids and really kind of starting the new millennium off at like a really high note to sort of just kind of disappearing almost like she would show up mm-hmm. at certain times like she did the Whitney Houston tribute in 2012 for BET and she kind of sang and she was on the game but it was like she just was at the top of the world if I saw like Britney Spears here I would say like Britney would be like right here kind of like looking eye to mm-hmm. eye and then it, it just kind of got ripped out from under her and I mean of course there was a lot of like personal things going on in her life but even then it was like everyone just sort of forgot her impact or forgot what she gave us I mean, to your point right there, you said she was almost eye to eye with Britney. Look at how much of a household name Britney is as compared to Brandy mm-hmm. from like a very yeah. white American perspective, you know? And it's like now we're like talking about the cultural outrage of how we did Britney wrong. But it's like we're not having this conversation with, you know, black female artists who went through their hardships. Yeah. And I mean, the thing with Brandy also was, I mean, like she was the first black singer to be a face of cover girl. She had her own line of Barbies. I think I have a Brandy yeah. Barbie doll. Like she was the moment, you know, but still somehow she got lost in the shuffle in some ways. And I mean, like there is this interview with her in 2017 with the LA Times and they're talking to her about how she was entangled in litigation with her label and like what her plans were moving forward. And so it's like somebody who was like a household name was like doing crossover hits, was had a Barbie line, had a TV show, like all of these incredible things. If they can get entangled in label litigation to the point where she was like, oh yeah, like I want to go India. I want to see if I can do this on my own like it's so crazy that that was what her trajectory wound up being where she got stuck in these issues that somebody of that level of fame should not have to deal with yeah and I think another thing is that usually women that are given a certain level of power that's almost like past their expectation rate as well as their timeline usually that's Mm -hmm. been given to them starts to kind of 
be put in a room where people are sort of questioning them or questioning their abilities. Sometimes they'll say like, oh, you cheated your way to do this. Oh, you must have slept your way to get yeah. here. And then it makes the person start to question themselves because Brandy always says like, I always question myself as a vocalist, I always question my vocal ability, which is insane to hear because she is the standard for a lot of pop and R&B singing styles, like the whole vocal layering thing, all of the cloudy sounds. Like anytime you hear like Ariana Grande layer herself 24 times, very much a Brandy inspiration that her best friend and co-songwriter Victoria Monet definitely probably helped influence her with because Brandy's a huge inspiration for Victoria. And like she is the standard for singing now. And I didn't even remember it personally until I heard her last album that she released in 2020. When I heard everything she was doing I was like oh yeah you did this first why didn't I remember that and it's just crazy that you can kind of get lost in the weeds of the history of music in America and how things have been an influence and how a lot of the time black singers really were the influence or the standard for culture but it just gets like lost in the weeds or it yeah. loses the value until they show back up 20 years later and you're like oh my god where have you been almost like it's always this like where have you been sort of thing yeah. um, which I feel yeah. like we've kind of been going through that yeah 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 no you said a lot of really great points here and part of it is this selective remembrance of history and like who do we credit as the mm-hmm. most important artists and for Sarah and I like we know like rock music a lot better so it's like when we look back at rock history it's like the first people you're gonna name are gonna be white artists because that's how history books were written like black Black people were literally mm-hmm. written out of the history books or like given one-liners. And so like to your point, it's like, you're like, how did I forget? How did we not remember? You know, it was the selective remembrance of society. And then the other point that you said just a minute ago that I want to come back to was you were saying it's almost like she had this timeline and it was like, well, we don't really need you anymore. And so now we're going to like look for ways mm-hmm. to get rid of you. Maybe you're the problem. And they were literally just gaslighting her. Like what you said, making her question herself. That's literally just gaslighting like we don't need you anymore (laughs) you must be the problem here well there was actually this really incredible interview with her in the washington post in 2020 with helena andrews dyer where brandy was promoting her b7 album and she said quote there have been times where other people have intentionally tried to make me feel like i'm a has-been and part of me the weaker parts of me bought into that i really believe that i really took time off i was lost i didn't know what my sound was i didn't even know if i was important enough in music to put together a body of work and so helena goes on to explain how like brandy's fans refer to her as the vocal bible because of the depth of her sound and she's like how could brandy possibly think that she didn't matter and brandy goes on to say it's those feelings that you get when you're not all the way sure i doubted what i thought was good those were my lowest of lows to not know who i was and this is the thing is it's like what jenna was saying it's like selective remembrance people picking and choosing like who lives past their quote-unquote crime in the spotlight and it's like she had played such a role in music history especially in that time where you're very much allowed to exist a bit outside of the box you know because times are changing in like the late 90s early 2000s and yet even though she had all these things that we've talked about like she had all these successes she was hitting all of the check marks into like how to become a household name she wasn't ever allowed to like outlast like if she wasn't just like in your face existing it was like people forgot about her and by people 
people, we mean like the relative general American public of like average white people, you know, if it's like, oh, she's not on TV right now. Therefore, she no longer exists in my brain. And so it's just one of those things where it's like she's so influential to music. And it's even like when we talked to Fifi Dobson, like when she went to go start her career, they're like, oh, you're going to be like a Brandy Spears. You're going to be a mixture of Brandy and Britney Spears. And she's like, I want to be a rock star. And they're like, oh, but Brandy. And so it's that thing where even in talking to her about that, it's like, oh, are people who listen to the podcast even going to know what we mean when we're talking about Brandy? Like, who knows if that's going to make a light bulb go off in their head or not? Because she was out of the spotlight for such a long time, even though her quote unquote heyday, she was such a big part of what was going on in the world and like forward momentum in pop culture, you know? Yeah. I think also this is a thing to highlight when it comes to black women a lot of the time you see definitely like a very advent comparison granted we just see this in women and entertainment in general I will just say across the board like everybody wants to give a label because they're it's kind of how you market someone's like it's giving so and so meets so and so but I think in terms yeah. of black women like it's like we saw this as a success story like even when Mariah first came out they immediately wanted to align her as competition for Whitney Houston and she's like I mm-hmm. love Whitney Houston like why would I no like I'm me she's her you know we have our own lanes but also that's usually a common thing where they want to find like when uh Normani first started singing even though Normani's more of a pop singer they really were like how can we get her to fit the mold of like Aaliyah 2.0 meets Janet Jackson mm-hmm. and I definitely think those are a lot of her inspirations so you can see in like her dancing style her videos her choreos it's insane but like why can't she just like be Normani <laughs> you yeah. know why can't she have her own storyline and let her develop herself and I think that yeah. also sort of stifles the creative gaze of how they can make their music because it's like you are trying to sort of reiterate these people that we've already seen and because they've done well versus allowing people to have their own narrative or allowing people to be themselves or to be people that they just don't identify with at all like how do you want someone that's a dark-skinned black woman to look like someone that's a biracial person yeah i think also as we're thinking about this type of marketing of like oh they're like an xyz person my brain goes to two places like one is that marketing works because we have human brains as much as we like hate it (laughs) as much as we hate these labels like our brains are like how associate things together like this is how like, yeah. like I, I, yeah. I joked about this on one of our recent episodes but I feel like human consciousness is trying to like outdo itself of we recognize that it's messed <laughs> yeah. up but our nature is to exist like that so that's one side of it but the other side of it i think and i think this is more like what you're talking about with the normani examples it's like because as we talk about general america as predominantly white they don't like things that don't look like them they don't like people who don't like 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 them this is why colorism is a whole thing and so it's like ooh, if you have something that i can't relate to because i can't relate visually because we judge people visually so much i must somehow relate them with something else that i know is safe and if brandy is safe or if Aretha Franklin is a safe black woman to me and you relate Normani to that then maybe I can accept Normani it's like that how can a white person relate to this person who looks so different from them like as dumb as it sounds as much as I hate to say it's like that's literally how our pea brains work I mean no you're 100% correct and I think that's one reason why I'm going back to Ms. Lauren Hill why that didn't work is because it's like Lauren Hill is so unsafe and just so radical to them and saying these things that like we can't even try to make sound appropriate for this audience and it's like that makes a lot of sense why her career sort of worked out the way it did versus people that are considered more like sellable passable you know there's definitely a certain like I mean there's always the archetype of like the safe black person you know being quite honest like I've been told that I fit that mold you know being lighter skinned black woman being a black woman with extensions those are things that people pay attention to they're like oh yeah you're good like we can talk to you 
sort of thing. Yeah, and it's, it, exactly. it, it's a thing that is very yeah. prevalent. This is a pattern that exists in so many ways where it's like, oh, like, how do you make somebody palatable? What can you take away from somebody to make them more acceptable to the like general population or whatever the case is? And it's like, you should never have to erase a part of yourself just to like fit within this idea of, oh, there's a certain population that's like the sellable population or like, I like to refer to them like the people who watch American Idol, the people who watch X Factor. It's like, they're not necessarily like music fans but they will listen to music if the music is plated to them on a silver platter you know and it's very much that thing where you can go into a room and people will know like one song by like every person who's ever been on the radio but if you're like oh have you heard this song even if it's like Ed Sheeran they probably have not because they just listen to what's given to them and they just nod along and are like okay cool and so the second you don't look like them like Jenna was saying or the second you're not like really Relatable, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is this is scary. I don't know what to do now. And that's why I think we do see this pattern of these black women in R&B who might not 100% fit with like the music industry definition specific of what R&B is or like are trying to do something a little bit different or trying to tell real stories or whatever of them going on these like elongated breaks and having issues with their labels or having issues in their personal lives and like their label not wanting to be understanding of them being a human because they are just viewing them as like a monetary gain. And I feel like that brings us to the last specific example that we're going to be talking about today and Jasmine Sullivan, who is somebody who I didn't even know that I knew who she was until you mentioned her. And then I will go down this rabbit hole. And like I said at the beginning, it's like, oh, I downloaded some of her music once because I heard her be covered on Glee. And it's like most people who watch Glee might not be doing that, you know? And again, it's like that general population of watching a show, buying the Glee cover on iTunes afterwards and like never revisiting like where that song came from or like what the deal is. And she arrived on the music scene in 2008 as a 21-year-old protege of Missy Elliott. And her career just kind of exploded in that within her first two albums in 2008 and 2009, she was nominated for 12 Grammys. And so the fact that it's like, I know who she is because of Glee, that's embarrassing for me personally, but it's just like embarrassing in general that somebody who was nominated for 12 Grammys off of two albums kind of then went through some personal stuff by being in an abusive relationship and also the world kind of judging her because she didn't fit within like the beauty standards and all this stuff to kind of have to leave the music industry because she lost confidence in herself, which a lot of women can relate to by being in a shitty relationship but also on top of that the world's judging you because you're in the public spotlight you know and then her coming back and when she comes back it's at the height of Adele's fame and so everybody's comparing her to Adele and so many of these articles are like oh it's like comparing apples to oranges like they're so different but again it's like when a white woman has a soulful voice all of a sudden she becomes who the Black women making actual R&B music have to live up to, even though it should be the other way around. Yeah, 
And a lot of these times, even in retrospect to Adele, I think a lot of these people don't even intentionally place themselves in these positions. Like I think very much Adele is a singer and a woman who has grown up around Black culture and really respects it and respects mm-hmm. the place that it has in her life without fully like adopting it and doing the whole appropriation thing like we see in yeah. some other singers. It's just like that people have to give them this overextended gratitude of like, oh, Adele, you are incredible. We must give you the R&B label because you are so fly and you sound so holistic as a singer. But then even when she won her Grammy against Beyonce, she's like, this is completely out of whack. Do you not see what this woman has done for this entire community of women that look at this? feel just like her but it's like now take your award bye and then you have someone like jasmine sullivan who those two women couldn't be more different even in their songwriting their singing their ranges like they're just night and day like you said apples and oranges but it's like jasmine sullivan it does not fit any type of box nor should she ever feel the need to but it's like Mm -hmm. you're good at what you do we want to give you credit take this box and fit it like no she's been in this industry she has paid her dues for almost i think about 15 years now yeah because hotels came out in 2021 so this is like one of her third or fourth project but Mm -hmm. why should it take 13 years for someone that's gotten 12 grammy nominations to finally get the respect of the rolling stones the pitchforks the billboards i think billboard gave her a little bit of respect earlier on but like pitchfork was like you're the best album of the year like well yeah you're not wrong but also what are you supposed to do say thank you and bow because someone finally got their recognition 15 years later like she's been one of the best vocalists of our generation and those that knew like the girls that got it got it and the girls that didn't just found out this year yeah but why should it take someone of that stature and training and a protege of Missy Elliott for people to figure it out just now? Also on the Adele side of things, again, going back to the general music listener and of course like England too being a very white country as well. For people who are not well versed in the nuances of R&B, anything that sounds slightly soulful, you're like, ah, R&B, there it is. There it is. Adele, R&B baby, you know? <laughs> Like, they don't yeah. know. They don't know the difference. Because Adele's the only frame of reference they have. Like, maybe Whitney Houston, like, All I Want for Christmas is You. You know, maybe the <laughs> hits, right? <laughs> they just don't have a frame of reference for what Neo Soul is, for what future R&B is, the nuances of this genre. So it's like, a white person doing it, they're like, oh, yes, this must be everything under R&B is Adele, you know? And it's just like lacking that context, lacking the frame of reference, lacking the interest of it all. There was this really good article on Hello Beautiful and... 2016, where they were essentially just explaining an Associated Press interview with Jasmine. In this AP article, they're like comparing Adele and Jasmine because that's what happens, of course. In this article, what this author, Zon Demore, was saying is that Jasmine's most recent album as of 2016, which was her 25th album reality show while it did debut at number two on billboard's top r&b slash hip-hop albums which as we discussed in the beginning r&b and hip-hop are vastly different things and once again just like something that these charts throw mostly black people into like this category the cd only sold thirty thousand copies in its first week and like as we've talked about on the podcast cds haven't really sold well in the past like 10 years so like that's not really a huge number to think about but in that same time frame Adele released her single Hello and her album 25 sold over 15 million copies worldwide within its 
first month of release. And so again, it's like comparing two people that should not be compared because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But also it just goes to show how few R&B slash hip hop albums were coming out around that time when like 30,000 sold albums gets you to number two in the charts, just like in 2016, like frame of mind and like all of that sort of stuff. But the thing that really hit me and I think is something that we all need to think about because I think a lot of even fans still to this day, even when album sales aren't great, constantly think about album sales and charting positions. And again, these are things that we've talked about in past episodes is that Jasmine Sullivan is like, this this should not be something we focus on. And so what she said to the Associated Press is the tours were sold out. And I just felt so much love because again, she's like returning after like a five, six year hiatus, you know, and she's like, I don't get too much into album sales and anything like that. What I do tend to do is if I go to a show and it's sold out and if people are singing the lyrics to the songs, that's the kind of stuff that makes what I do so great. And I feel like this is the thing. And like, I just really, this is how everybody should base how like if they actually want to be a fan of an artist, it's like if the artist actually cares about their artistry and like the numbers aren't the thing at the forefront of their mind. And so everything about her that I've learned in doing research for this episode has just proven to me that the music always comes first for her. And that is similarly to Miss Lauren Hill, Jasmine Sullivan's like, I'm not going to let somebody dictate who I am or what music I'm putting out or what I'm doing. I'm going to tell my truest story, my friend's truest story. I'm going to give a voice to the stories that aren't heard all the time, which I think is incredibly beautiful and necessary in a genre that kind of gets looked over and appropriated as often as it does. Yeah. And I think one thing that's so special about R&B is that storytelling is very much at the forefront. And I actually ironically just saw Jasmine Sullivan at Day in Vegas in November and like same thing she was on one of the main stages i want to say there was at least like five to ten thousand people that went over there to see her and when i say i have never seen an, an artist who every person knew every single like run and like note that she hit and it sounded terrible with everyone singing it but like just like the level of love and the level of appreciation for an artist that really you know i've never i mean that was like the first r&b festival i've ever been to like really r&b and hip-hop and like seeing people love this music that i've loved so much all this time but I always felt like i was weird for kind of like having such a fan affinity for it that it was really Mm -hmm. accepted same thing with like seeing Ari Lennox and SZA at the same festival like there is a pocket for this music to get taken seriously at a major level as everyone says like R&B is not dead the thing I kind of got out of this is that like I want people to really see these women and see them to be taken seriously to see them for them to see them for their storytelling not to see them Mm -hmm. for a chart position that usually gets manipulated and men are placed at a higher placement unfortunately not placed as a way to compare to their favorite pop artists or just like make them feel better about liking pop music because some of their other favorite artists have a similar style Mm -hmm. like I just want these women to be taken for who they are and be loved for who they are and get the same treatment and the same love from fans and the same appreciation like that is really what I am doing and trying to like do in this industry like that's why I want to work in it and the fact that you guys were even taking the time to talk about this like I'm just very grateful I hope more people can to talk about it in the coming years like I hope people listen to this I hope we start seeing more people that get the same treatment as Jasmine I hope they get more nominations there's just so much potential in R&B and women in R&B and the potential has always been there I just hope that like our generation is the generation that gives them their justice as do like I don't want to hear in 20 years when I'm in my 40s like do you remember Jasmine Sullivan do you remember Ari Lennox like no they deserve their flowers now like let's give it to them now 
Um, I'm off yeah. my soapbox now. <laughs> no, yeah. you're fine. It's a great soapbox to be on. And I feel like for a lot of these artists that we've mentioned, and as we said, it's like that light bulb goes off when you hear their name and you're like, oh, remember when? And it's like, these people should be household names throughout the whole time. You know, they should be names that get passed down, names that you listen to that you put on your playlist of forever. You know, it's like that playlist that you listen to when you're with your whole family that, you know, everybody's going to like know all the words of the songs. Like these women belong on those playlists, you know, but because of the way America works, they get lost sometimes. And so I think that going back and revisiting these people and like giving them the time of day and even going and listening to like we said like Brandy's put out new music like Jasmine Sullivan's putting out new music all of these women are really shining again and being given the opportunity to shine again and like you said it's like R&B is not dead it's something we need to focus on and we're so thankful that you wanted to come and talk with us about this because again it's something that we're aware of and we respect but you get so stuck in like your music genres which so many people like are age talk about how it's like oh like when I'm sad I'm just gonna go put on pop punk because I'm always stuck in 2005 no matter how problematic that music scene is or what have you and so it's like the gift and joy of this podcast is being able to broaden our horizons learn more about artists that we maybe liked when we were kids or still like they'll come on and we're like oh my god and like randomly we'll listen to somebody's whole discography for like a week you know and just so many of these women like deserve to be celebrated to this day deserve to be celebrated like throughout their time that was the one thing that just really really stuck with me in so many of these women's stories is that they felt like they needed to step away from music when all they ever wanted to do was make music and that's just so upsetting because it does happen with white women's music careers but like not as often and most of the time even if they do want to step away they're not allowed to because it's like no, no, no. Look at this contract you signed. Whereas it seems like with these women, they're like, oh, we don't care about that contract. Like, we'll get stuck in litigation forever. As long as we don't need to deal with you anymore, it's fine with me. Whereas like Britney Spears, it was like forced to be a workhorse for years and like all or like whatever the case is. And so that's a thing that I think just really, really struck me is it's like, these women were so beaten down by the general public or their peers or other people in the music industry that they had to stop what they were doing, even when they were like at the height of their career, just because they weren't given the same shot as everyone else. And it's like really incredible to see that a lot of them have come back and like that there's space for them now, which like sounds fucked up because there always was space for them. But again, it's that thing of the general wokeness that the world is allowing itself to have or like a lot of white people are giving themselves permission to have now is giving these women back an opportunity that those same white people probably stole from them at some point, you know? Yeah, it definitely is a window of opportunity. It's a very strange one, you know, being in a pandemic and having an entire like social justice like breakdown happen about a year and a half ago of course it's it's super sad to see and it it was very daunting to watch like as a young black woman but also like seeing so many things be born out of that is kind of Mm -hmm. like this it's a very much a bittersweet thing like I'm very excited for the future of R&B music in the industry and I'm very excited to be a black woman in this space and getting to do this as a job but at the same time it's like at what cost Like, what did the people before me, what did the women before me have to sacrifice for us that are my age, that are singing, that are in the industry, that are professionals to be here and to finally get a window to, you know, feel like we can speak, feel like we can fully vocalize how we feel and feel like that we can talk about these things without being fears of being blackballed, et cetera, getting contracts canceled, et cetera. 
Well, what you're saying now and what we what we talk about a lot with issues is sometimes it feels so impossible. Like it feels like there's still so much like when we're talking about reaching, you know, equality or whatnot, like there's still so many steps we have to take to get there. But it's like every day, every year, every artist, every person in the industry who's taking a step forward in the same fight for these things is another step forward. And this is what you were saying earlier. It's it's like these black female artists referencing all the black female artists before them, everyone building together, building on that continuous story to help move this conversation forward. And another thing I just wanted to point out was, you know, Jasmine Sullivan and Brandy having albums very recently. Jasmine Sullivan is 34 and Brandy is 42. So not only is it amazing that we're having more young black female artists that are allowed to put out music, that are allowed to perform at award shows, but we're having women in their 30s and their 40s who are being allowed to release music and kind of have a resurgence. And that's really cool too, because we don't often see that a lot. That's very true. And that's a very good point. It's kind of a opportunity on both ends and you know they're getting spots on television like brandy's on abc right now in queens it's a very exciting time and i'm just really really excited i hope that things like respect featuring you know aretha franklin jennifer hudson is aretha franklin like i hope these movies keep being made because it's good to see a peak like even before doing this like i watched the aretha show that national geographic put on with cynthia revo and that was just so much great insight to see like everything that she had to sacrifice at the time but just very much sometimes it's within the storyline because like her career was like 50 years I think 50 to Mm -hmm. 60 and sometimes we don't have time to like always think about those things but just seeing what people put up with with every single era of music whether it's from like Nina Simone Aretha to like Jasmine Sullivan Brandy like to Ashanti to Mariah Carey like every single woman sacrificed something and I just Mm -hmm. hope that their sacrifices don't go unrecognized. Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. So Maya, we just want to give a big, big, big thank you for coming and sharing all your knowledge with us today. You've been an amazing guest and thank you for bringing all this knowledge to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. Yeah, thank y'all for having me. I I love this podcast. (laughs) Well, thank you. And we're going to have all of the links to like your social and your podcast as well. So if any of our listeners want to go check out that as well, they can do so in the description below. And yes, thanks again. We learned so much. I feel like I'm a broken record at the end of every episode when we have a guest where I'm like, we learned so much. But I, I don't know. It's just always so incredible when, like, you go and you read articles. And again, like I always say, you learn so much from the articles. And then you have an in-depth conversation with some friends. And you're like, oh, my God. I yeah, love opening, this. Opening new doors. Opening new windows in our minds. <laughs> guys, I love learning. <laughs> I love learning with you guys. <laughs> but I will say, after that really nice conversation and like the really nice ending we had one thing that did pop into my mind was how right now hip-hop is like one of the most popular genres absolutely dominating the charts and we have a lot of Mm -hmm. female hip-hop artists also dominating the charts too is that r&b as a genre isn't as popular as far as like pop we're talking about popular music goes like Mm -hmm. a lot of the artists we're talking about and a lot of the artists that are kind of more popular right now like proper r&b artists are like not mainstream popular artists and so I was kind of just like puzzling as to like why we see that distinction but I think there are still a lot of R&B elements in both like songwriting and vocal styling that are incorporated into pop music just like it's subtleties Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm just like really intrigued to see the music trends that are going to come over the next couple of years, just because I do feel like, as I've said a lot, like genres are starting to not have as much meaning and like there's less need for only one woman to exist within a specific genre. You know, like it, it feels like there's more space for women to shine and have a voice where they didn't before or their voice was taken away from them in like a way that was just completely unnecessary to do because it's like oh we have to make room for someone else like there needs to be space for somebody else whatever you know but for you guys listening as we obviously love to discuss these episodes with you I mean like is R&B a genre that you listen to like are these artists that you are passionate about or is it something like we were talking about before where like a light bulb went off and you were sitting here listening to the episode and googling to remind yourself about somebody who at one point might have played a big role in your life but because again it's kind of like like when one stops a new one comes up because there's always only room for one of them like especially in like the late 90s early 2000s that people get forgotten and they just become part of like a certain space and time in your brain you know and like what are your hopes and dreams for R&B going forward now that the music world and the world at large is like becoming more accepting for things that don't just make the American Idol public comfortable. If you have thoughts and feelings about that, come reach out to us on social media. We are at Name3Songs on Instagram and Twitter, or you can talk to us personally. If you have beef or if you have words of adoration for us, you can come talk to us. I'm at Sarah underscore Fagan and Jenna is at Jenna underscore Million. So thanks so much for joining us this week on Name Three Songs. Until next time, never let anyone make you feel bad about your favorite band. And remember, you're never too cool to listen to Jasmine Sullivan. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when each episode comes out. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. They really help. If you want to find out more about any of the sources we referenced in this episode, you can visit Name3Songs.com. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.